Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present James Henry, an economist, attorney, investigative journalist, and global justice fellow at Yale University, who examines the systemic causes and remedies to address a string of recent bank failures. Medea Benjamin, co-director of Code Pink Women for Peace, and author Nicholas Davies, who discussed the dark legacy of America's 2003 invasion of Iraq and the not-so-winding road from Iraq to Ukraine. And Kendall Hale, of the group Rocking Chair Rebellion, who talks about Atlanta's Stop Cop City protest she participated in, and the important role of older activists in the climate movement. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Mexico's Congress has appointed a federal commission to investigate the Mexican military's use of Israeli spyware known as Pegasus, which has reportedly been surveilling the nation's human rights activists and journalists. The Guardian reports that the investigation has been launched as the army has come under intense criticism for spying on its critics in the aftermath of a leaked document hacked from military servers last year. Investigators will request a report from the army in the wake of allegations that the military used Pegasus to intercept communications between human rights activist Raimundo Ramos and several journalists regarding the allegations of extrajudicial killings by the army. Mexico's military reportedly used Pegasus in 2017 to spy on lawyers investigating the disappearance of 43 students. When asked about the spyware allegations, President López Obrador appeared to double down on his support for the military, dismissing the claims and accusing the media outlets which brought the accusations to light of being linked to opposition parties. Such comments suggest there's little chance the defense ministry will be held accountable. Just weeks after investigations began into the cause of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, the Federal Surface Transportation Board, or STB, approved the $27 billion merger of two major railroads, Canadian Pacific Railway and Kansas City Southern. Critics say the merger would permit more new bomb trains carrying hazardous high-carbon emission tar sands from mines in Alberta, Canada, to oil refineries in Port Arthur, Texas. While the merger's approval included some climate-related conditions, the STB rejected concerns that consolidation of the railroads would increase risks of accidents. A week before the merger was approved, a whistleblower had filed a complaint charging that both railroads violated antitrust laws by improperly exchanging sensitive corporate information. The American Prospect reports that the railroads spent a combined $1 million lobbying for the merger and boosted campaign contributions to Republican Senators John Thune and John Hoven. 
Philip Longman of the Open Markets Institute asserted that STB's approval of the merger will increase concentration in a monopolized rail industry and make a mockery of the idea that market forces alone can constrain the predatory behavior of the hedge funds that now control America's vital rail infrastructure. Two years ago, supporters of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders took over the leadership of Nevada's Democratic Party after defeating loyalists of former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Reid's allies bolted the party, taking with them key voter data, hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations, and senior personnel. They formed a competing organization they called National Democratic Victory. Now, after the midterm election where Nevada's incumbent Democratic senator narrowly won, but the incumbent governor was defeated by his GOP opponent, Nevada's Democratic Party chair, Judith Whitmer, who had originally been backed by Sanders supporters, lost her re-election bid. Progressives, including Democratic Socialists of America and labor unions, threw their support to unity candidate Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno. Democratic strategist Peter Kodak, an advisor to Sanders' 2020 campaign, blasted Whitmer and her allies for a complete lack of competence. As Sasha Abramsky recently observed in The Nation magazine, if Democrats want to continue to hold power in places like Nevada, they need a party political machinery led by leaders who aren't just idealistic, but are also competent. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On March 10th, The U.S. suffered its biggest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis when California Silicon Valley Bank collapsed after their tech industry customers, hearing about the bank's huge losses, panicked and tried to pull their money out. Although the FDIC intervened and promised depositors they would have access to all their funds, confidence in the financial system was shaken and spread to other banks worldwide. Days later, a second U.S. regional bank, Signature Bank, was shut down. A third, First Republic Bank, was propped up, followed by a threat to the stability of one of the world's largest banks, Credit Suisse, which was averted after it was taken over by Swiss banking giant UBS, with $225 billion in loans from the Swiss government. Analysts blame a number of factors for these bank failures and lowered confidence in the financial system including mismanagement, the Federal Reserve's recent rapid interest rate increases, and the weakening of government regulation. Your reporter spoke with James S. Henry, a leading economist, attorney, investigative journalist, and Global Justice Fellow at Yale University, who examines the systemic causes and remedies available to prevent future bank failures. Kind of obvious uh, after uh, more than a decade of easy money that the Federal Reserve uh, would be raising interest rates, and they started talking about it uh, uh, middle of last year. Uh, but when you looked at Silicon Valley Bank in particular, and also Signature Bank in New York, 
second and third largest bank failures in history now, uh, they basically failed to hedge against uh, their their loan and their asset portfolios uh, against the likelihood the Federal Reserve would raise rates. In fact, Silicon Valley Bank didn't even have a credit risk manager. They had uh, the Federal Reserve had been in there advising them to get tougher, uh, but uh, you know Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve has had a had a light touch when it comes to regulating banks and. Uh, there weren't any requirements that Silicon Valley actually, uh, you know, clean up its act. Uh, so, you know, I think that opportunity, uh, you know, was missed. Uh, we've learned that even small banks can be systemic risks here. I mean, Silicon Bank was banking to more than half of the venture startups in the country. Uh, we're all um, around this one watering hole. Uh, you know, they basically uh, – were you know 98% of the deposits in the bank were uninsured. We're talking about 175 billion dollars of deposits, and it only took uh, you know about eight hours for 42 billion of those deposits to move uh, when they announced that they were having a hard time uh, maintaining capital a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, that was. Uh, I think you could blame the Federal Reserve for raising interest rates, but that's too general. You know, there's many specific behaviors at these particular banks uh, that we learned from. In the case of uh, Signature Bank, about a $100 billion bank, uh, you know, they had about uh, $89 billion of deposits, also uninsured. $15 billion of them uh, were in the form of crypto from, in, uh, from depositors. Uh, whose identities were hard to find. Mm. And so the New York State, State Bank regulators just shut them down, and there's now a criminal investigation of Signature. I mean, Signature is a bank that had uh, Barney Frank, Representative Frank, of the Dodd-Frank bill mm-hmm. on its board. Uh, you know, Greg Becker, the CEO of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, was on the board of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. These are connected people. And, uh, you know, so it's just uh, 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 astonishing to me that these simple mistakes of lack of diversification, lack of hedging, uh, ignoring the fact that small banks like this can have a strategic impact on a whole segment of the economy like venture capital, um, you know, that these basic mistakes were being made. They're not, not fancy mistakes at all. James, I did want to ask you about deregulation. Under Donald Trump's presidency, there was a bipartisan move to gut the Dodd-Frank Act. That regulation enacted after the 2008 financial crisis. As you look at that weakening of regulation, is it the congressional role right now to enforce stricter regulations, especially on smaller regional banks? Should that be the course of action going forward, do you think? Well, absolutely. I think is you know this 2017 and 2018 under uh, uh, Trump and under uh, Chairman Powell, there was an effort by the Federal Reserve to reduce the stress testing that was going on for banks that were with less than 250 billion dollars of assets in the United States, and that would include uh, both of these two banks that just failed. You know, the Federal Reserve did show up on an informal basis, consulted with Silicon Valley Bank over the last uh, 18 months, 
and found that they had many shortcomings in their risk management and their hedging systems. But they basically had no authority to order the bank to do anything. One of the key lessons here is that if you're going, if you're a central banker and you're going to raise interest rates to fight inflation, uh, especially after a long decade of quantitative easing and you know, kind of loose lending in the economy, you have to realize that many banks have developed very bad habits. They are dependent on liquidity that you've been providing generously. And they've been more and more engaged in taking uninsured deposits uh, and investing in all these uh, interest-sensitive securities. And so, you know, you really do need as a counterpart to raising uh, interest rates much tougher bank regulation so you can anticipate these problems. That's not something that Chairman Powell was favoring, and so he got caught out uh, in this situation has been having to play catch-up. So, you know, that's, uh, I think, applicable to both of the bank failures that have already happened and to the regional banks that are also, in many cases, still floundering. Today, there are several regional banks that are still on the ropes, and we're watching very closely to see if they're going to be added to the list. That was James S. Henry, an economist, attorney, investigative journalist, and Global Justice Fellow at Yale University, who's Managing Director at the Sag Harbor Group. Find more analysis and commentary on remedies available to prevent future bank failures by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. March 19th this year marked the 20th anniversary of President George W. Bush's launch of the U.S. invasion of Iraq a war of aggression based on a series of lies, claiming that Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction that threatened the U.S. and the world. WMDs were never found in Iraq, but the U.S. invasion and the bloody civil war it triggered killed between 200,000 to 300,000 Iraqi civilians, 4,500 U.S. soldiers, countless wounded and disabled veterans on all sides, in addition to more than 9 million Iraqi refugees and a nation whose infrastructure was shattered for decades. The dark legacy of America's invasion of Iraq persists today, with dozens of governments and millions of people in the global south who remain distrustful of the motives behind U.S. foreign policy. After Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine last year, many of these same nations refused to comply with Western sanctions against Russia. Your reporter spoke with Medea Benjamin, co-director of Code Pink Women for Peace, and Nicholas Davies, author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, who serves as a Code Pink researcher. Here they discuss issues of accountability and double standards in international law, addressed in their recent article titled The Not-So-Winding Road from Iraq to Ukraine. I think it's important to recognize that those 20 years of war were so devastating to the Iraqi people and that the American people really never understood how it created such upheaval, so much death and destruction, so much sectarian hatred, uh, so much chaos and violence and uh, led to the uh, explosion of ISIS. It was just devastating for the country. And while we know to the exact number how many American soldiers were killed there, we have no idea how many Iraqis were killed. And people don't realize 
that these kinds of interventions not only are devastating for the country, but they're devastating for the reputation of the United States. And I think that's one of the connections that we make in the article that so many countries, particularly in the global south, are so disillusioned with the United States. Um, One of the reasons is interventions like Iraq, where there is never any accountability. Nobody goes to jail for the crime of violating the sovereignty of another nation. And yet the U.S. is leading the pack in trying to charge uh, Vladimir Putin with war crimes and trying to get the whole world to uh, be against the Russians for violating the sovereignty of Ukraine. And we say that it's very hard when the U.S. has squandered uh, its legitimacy to get countries, uh, especially in the global south, to go along with the U.S. Thank you for that, Medea. Nicholas, what would you like to add in terms of this marking of 20 years since the U.S.-Iraq invasion and the current war in Ukraine? One of the tragic aspects of the situation we're in is that, in fact, uh, the architects of the U.S. invasion of Iraq still wield enormous, enormous influence over U.S. foreign policy. None of the administrations that have come along since the Bush administration have really renounced the the U.S. exceptionalism and the idea that, that the U.S. predominance in military power gives it the right to use that military power aggressively against other countries. Um, You know, we talked in in our article about the roles of Joe Biden, who was then the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Antony Blinken, who was then the staff director of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, in ramming through the Senate approval of the war by failing to call any anti-war voices to the committee hearings and essentially shutting down any questioning of the neoconservatives' plan to invade Iraq. I did want to turn back to you, Medea, as you mentioned the the peace proposals and uh, the sentiment calling for an end to this conflict in Ukraine. Many peace groups, like Code Pink, as well as governments in the global south, are calling for diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine. And China has recently proposed a peace plan Although it's vague on specifics, there is a growing sentiment that the United States should get on board and try to end this war rather than to fuel it. But the United States objectives in Ukraine were made pretty clear when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. goal in Ukraine was to weaken Russia militarily and economically. So it seems that they're pretty upfront about not wanting to end this war anytime soon. What's your view of what should be done in in terms of pressure from the U.S. people as well as the people of the world to end the war in Ukraine? I think all parties have to be pressured to go to the negotiating table. And I'm sure that China is pressuring Russia right now with the uh, visit to uh, be uh, more open to negotiations. And the uh, framework for peace that the Chinese put forward is really just a, uh, I think, initial putting out on the table some of the general ideas to start talking. 
uh, it wasn't rejected by Zelensky. It was rejected by the United States, who said uh, that China is no, in no position to act as a mediator. Well, they just successfully mediated between two longtime enemies, Iran and Saudi Arabia. So they certainly are, are starting to uh, set a trend towards being uh, peacemakers. It is unfortunate that the U.S. keeps rejecting these proposals and doesn't put forward a proposal of its own, doesn't talk to the Russians. So we don't live in Russia. We don't have a way to pressure Vladimir Putin. We live in the United States, and our job is to pressure our members of Congress and the White House. That was Medea Benjamin, co-director of Code Pink Women for Peace, and author Nicholas Davies. Find a link to their recent article titled The Not-So-Winding Road from Iraq to Ukraine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. March 6th, during the week of action in Atlanta to stop Cop City, a group of elders calling themselves the Rocking Chair Rebellion took banners and flyers to the city's headquarters of the general contractor, Brassfield and Gorey, that's building the $90 million militarized police training facility, officially known as the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. The elder activists spent the day visiting five other Brassfield and Gorey construction sites to speak with construction managers and workers. They discussed their concern about how the Cop City project will destroy part of the forest known as Atlanta's Fourth Lung, which protects local residents, most of whom are African American, from high levels of pollution while also mitigating climate change. Temperatures during the week of protests hit 80 degrees, unseasonably warm during winter. Cop City opponents maintain that the project promotes a militarized police response that disproportionately harms Atlanta's black population. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, who was part of the elder activist team in Atlanta, interviewed fellow member Kendall Hale about her experience during the protest. Hale references Bill McKibben, co-founder of the global climate action group 350.org and founder of Third Act, a climate and democracy organization aimed at engaging activists over the age of 60. As a 73-year-old, I've been an activist my entire life, almost, since I can say 18. And I feel really proud that I've been able to contribute my leadership despite aging, which is very challenging, and that I have friends who are still able physically to actually do what we did here. But just the dedication of this collective group of people is enough to sustain um, me to do other things, maybe not here again, but just the fact that we did it and that we might not ever function again as this particular group makes me feel like we're a model in some ways for what other elders could do or maybe are doing that we don't know about, you know, and I think 
McKibben, you know, inspiring so many people with this idea of the third act, even though they weren't really part of this so much as our group, but many of us are in third act as well. And I think the combination of knowing that we are being welcomed and that we're, we're being valued as older people who have a special privileged role to contribute to social justice and to the climate movement um, is very, very remarkable. Say a little bit more about what what you actually did while you were down here. This is in support of uh, the effort to stop Cop City. How did you fit into this uh, effort? Well, I'm really used to doing in the street actions. I've been doing it for years, and I really like banner making. I like the artwork that goes into it. I think that it's really effective when you have that skill and you can stand out in front of lots of cars and pedestrians. There weren't a lot of pedestrians, but you know, Atlanta has a lot of cars. So we did get viewed by a lot of people, but one of the, the best parts of it for me was figuring out how to actually go into the streets when the lights turned red with our banners and then quickly move out when it became green so we never blocked traffic. We weren't um, aggravating anybody. They weren't getting mad or being held up and then we could quickly move away. And I think that's an, that, that kind of thinking, that kind of creative thinking about how you educate people quickly and then you could pass flyers out without irritating the public because you don't want the blowback. You don't want people to just look at those nutcases. I'm trying to get to a hospital or I'm trying to get home. I'm trying to get to work. And going onto the sites and picking these sites out that took a lot of scouting to figure out where these plants were and who, was, who, who gives the money to this. And, and just having the courage to know, you know, we could get arrested, but we didn't. And we were careful and strategic and maybe lucky. <laughs> so it was all good. What's the next step? What do you think might, might be in store for elders? I think we need to keep ourselves very healthy and strong because it's difficult to do this if you're physically disabled and it's painful. It can be very painful to do this kind of work on the streets sort of thing. So I think we need to keep remembering that it's possible and, and, and just assuming that there'll always be a role for us somewhere, you know, out on the streets or in banners or going in like we did to try to talk to managers. I think there's a great role for maybe not this particular type in Atlanta, but just to keep our, our ears you know, to the ground and know where we can move in in the future because young people are going to be facing a lot of challenges you know, as, as things go forward and that we need to just get some allies there. And, and see if it's worth it and try to analyze it and be you know, critical and think, thinking about whether it's a good thing for us to do and being cautious of our age and our limitations, but our wisdom and our experience, and particularly nonviolent, nonviolent civil disobedience, I think is the only way forward. That was Kendall Hale, part of a group of elder activists called the Rocking Chair Rebellion that participated in protests against Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. Learn more about the Stop Cop City protests and the role of older activists in the climate movement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You 
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WOZW in Knoxville, Tennessee, WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.